Hello, and welcome to this Earth to Humans bonus episode. Let me first say thank you to all of you who are listening to this. Your support is the lifeblood of this podcast series. Don't ever hesitate to reach out to us with questions, comments, complaints, ideas, or thoughts. You can contact us directly via our Patreon page, and you can also leave comments on any of the posts that we leave there. We always appreciate your feedback. Now, today, we are sharing some bonus content from my interview with Mark Dowie, as well as uh, some of the discussion that Serena and I had about the topics brought up by Mark in his books. Um, We're going to start with a bit of discussion from Mark about uh, reactions to his book, The Haida Gwaii Lesson. write the book and you've created the tool that then can be used to facilitate this this much larger outreach campaign um i'm just i'm curious like how that's going like what kind of reaction you've gotten from folks from other indigenous communities around the world what have you seen happen well um the the international organization of lawyers um that are primarily interested um in indigenous rights um I think they've all bought the book, but they, you know, they certainly know about it. Um, they've invited me to their conferences. Um, they've, um, um, and, you know, they've studied the, the, the Haida strategy very, very carefully. Those people probably um, speak to a total of maybe 20 languages. Um, and the book has been translated into all of their languages. Um, paid for by um, a guy I've raised money from in New York um, and um, who also saw that that the book, that there's an, an organization, international organization called what's it, International Forum for, uh, uh, on Indigenous People, right? IFIP. Um, he gave them a bunch of money to be sure that all of the members of their organization got at least one copy of the book. Um, and I get feedback from them and from the, the, the more, even more so from the international, the 300 international lawyers um, that are doing nothing but litigating for indigenous rights um, that the book has been very useful, inspiring, helpful, um, both as a way to use as a teaching document for for them to learn, but also for them to teach indigenous people the importance of timing and strategy um, and divide and breaking your strategy up into tactics and, um, and, and, and employing your tactics at the right, in the right order at the right time. Um, so strategy is a big part of it. Um, of course, the law um, of the country that is, is hosting an indigenous nation is also very important. Um, and, you know, that book, the Haida's, of course, was only based usually on Canadian and British Columbia law. Um, so I tried to uh, help this organization find ways to uh, make the make the legal arguments as generic as possible so that they would be useful um, to people in all of the countries where they're working. In terms of the response um, of the conservation community, the, you know, was to start forming 
what they call uh, community-based um, um, or indigenous-driven conservation projects. The first ones that I saw actually happen as a consequence of this um, in, insight uh, on the part of conservationists were in the marine protected areas of the Pacific. Um, and um, th- as you know, a lot of the the land surface of the planet that is now falls under the category of protected area um, is actually water. Um, and I think the largest protected area, single protected area on the planet is a piece of water in the Pacific, uh, north of Hawaii, the Hawaiian Islands, but um, which was actually um, created on the initiative of the Bush administration, strangely enough. But um, so, so marine protected areas are a big, big part of, uh, and they're, they're of course really important to native people because that's their protein, right? Um, Fish. And um, so they're, um, they, they watch the fish stock of the, of the planet uh, crash, basically, from their standpoint, um, because of, you know, big industrial fishing. So they needed to protect their fishing grounds and their protein grounds from big fisheries. So um, they, they did that by creating these, these large marine protected areas, and, and which they manage. And, and which they honor themselves. I mean, the, they, they're almost always, um, you know, the regulation in them is restricted areas in restricted times, which they honor themselves. All right. And next, we are going to jump into some of the discussion that Serena and I had about the topics raised in Mark's books. You know, like you seemed genuinely frustrated with like how you were grappling with the way that Mark, you know, talks about like it's good guys versus good guys. And you're like, you know, like F these guys, they, there's so much in, intentionality and cruelty and capitalism built in, just like fully baked into these corporate organizations. Um, how can you unravel that? And how can you even see them as good guys, even though the thing that they're doing is for the sake of conservation? Um, And, you know, like, I I was just thinking about, like, you know, John Muir and and Darwin and these sort of, like, foundational figures that we, you know, have elevated over the years and, and have, albeit, done incredible things, you know, for... Uh, you know, natural history and the environment and, and a lot of, a but lot like, of but like, something. Ha- but like, have they, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. You know, <laughs> like, I, and I mean, I think it depends on who we're talking about, you know? Yeah. Like, and, and I think that we have to like analyze each, you know, of these sort of um, these figures who have been sort of canonized in, uh, our society and in like the history that we tell ourselves about the conservation movement. Like we have to analyze each person individually, I think. And I think we also can't like fall into the trap of just saying, Oh, well, everybody was racist back then Yeah, because it's not true, you know? And like Mm -hmm. one of the things that's really interesting that this is totally a side tangent, but like, I think it's a real, you, I think it's a really hard case, I think, to like make the argument that John Muir's like net effect 
on conservation was positive because mm, mm. It, it was his idea, right? Like he was the one that was pushing. And I mean, I'm like, not just him, right? But he was the face of that campaign to protect Yosemite. And like a lot of these ideas about how it should be protected were his ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and reading Mark Dowie's book, it's like you start to understand the scale of effect that those ideas have had. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, but then like, you could take somebody like Thoreau, right? Who is like on, you know, just as sort of well-known and also sort of, you know, canonized within our society and w- within sort of the history of environmentalism. Like Thoreau was one of the most outspoken white abolitionists of his time. Like, mm-hmm. I read an article that claimed that Thoreau was the first white abolitionist to advocate for violence as an appropriate response to slavery. Mm. So, you you know what I mean? And it's like, Mm -hmm. how do you like apples and orange like they're not the same. Yeah. Like like that attitude that Thoreau have in my like that Thoreau had in my mind, like Muir had access to Thoreau's writings. Like, and we have evidence that, you know, like Muir read Thoreau and was inspired by Thoreau. So like, and yet he, you know, there were, yet he went off in this different direction (laughs) uh, on certain issues. And so, you know, it's like, I, I, I think that argument that is so universal of like, Oh well, everybody thought like that back then. Mm-hmm. It's just not mm-hmm. true, you know. That's I mean, maybe those like certainly those ideas were more per- pervasive in our society than they are now. Mm-hmm. But like, they're also really pervasive in our society right now, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but I, I think that's interesting. You know, like the the fact that we are kind of now able to acknowledge those really rotten roots. Like maybe maybe things do grow out of those roots. Um, you know, as you say, you're like, and I agree with you. It, it is like when you when you do really look at how much damage has been done by some of these figures based off of their ideology or whatever it is, it it, it tends to do more harm than good. Um, but you know, in 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 his book, in Mark's book, he kind of you know he kind of like danced around racism, I guess in in the book and you know and i think that's a really interesting choice and it makes me think about the recent um trial against the killers of ahmaud aubrey and the way that the prosecution treated that case and they they strayed way away from making race the central focus of that trial because they recognized that the jury you know their audience was predominantly white, you know, predominantly this, 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 and they were making it, you know, know, and I feel, I feel mixed feelings about the way that they did that because it was so rooted in race. That killing, that lynching of him was so rooted in race. Um, But they were successful in the trial, you know, by their strategy. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I was thinking about that as Mark was kind of saying that he's like, you know, I don't want to demonize and villainize these individuals or corporations necessarily because you know i'm i'm trying to not demonize conservation like conservation is important um but i don't know i I wondered what you thought about that like do you think that um you know like 
maybe Mark's next book or, you know, somebody else taking on kind of a more, you, you know, he's going through things with a fine tooth comb, you know, historical documents and trying to get to the root of everything. But even more so, I guess, like um, really going through things with the lens um, uh, of race. Yeah, I, I, it's such a tricky question, right? And And I mean, I think like one of the examples that Mark brings up in the interview and that like, well, so in his book, Conservation Refugees, Mark talks a lot about Peter Seligman, who uh, was the founder of Conservation International and their CEO for many years. And that's CI. We talk about CI in yeah, the podcast. Uh-huh. So just Conservation International. Yeah, for totally. Listeners. That's a good call to make that uh, distinction. So um, yeah. And Peter Seligman in the book is kind of like the epitome of the sort of leader of one of these transnational, you know, environmental NGOs who appears, at least if you like view his actions from the outside, appears to only care about one thing, which is fundraising, like raising enough, you know, like raising as much money for Conservation International as humanly possible based on the assumption that like, well, Conservation International is, they're a conservation organization, like that, what they do is inherently good, right? Um, Which obviously when you like pick apart the actual projects that they've done and that they've supported and some of the things that they've helped negotiate, like is definitely not true that everything that they've done is inherently good, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But... Peter Seligman several years ago, like left his position at Conservation International and founded a new nonprofit group whose sole mission is like indigenous rights in the service of conservation. Like he did a 180, you know, but like, I don't think like, like if you were to ask Peter Seligman from like the 90s, or the early 2000s when he was running Conservation International and raising all of this money and Conservation International was engaged in all of like numerous projects that resulted or would result in the dispossession of indigenous people all around the world. Like if you were to ask him like any of these questions, like I don't like, like he, he would have had the right answers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it, it's a really difficult question. And I mean, I think this gets to the heart of like a lot of the sort of like societal and cultural issues that like we face in America right now, right? Like who deserves that label of racist? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, is it just your actions? Even if you're unaware that your actions are resulting in really horrible outcomes for people of color? Like, if you have good intentions, then are you not a racist? You know what I mean? Like, right. (laughs) And I don't, I like, I can't tease that out, you know? I mean, like, um, and I don't know, like, maybe he is deeply racist and maybe he knew about all of that shit going on and just did it anyways because, you know, like, there's no way to know, you know? Right. Right. Um, But based off of actions, you know? we have we have what we have you know right right but like if we base it off actions then like mark makes an interesting point because like he chose not to like 
I, he chose not to directly demonize those people, even though if you read his mm-hmm. book, it is mm-hmm. like I walked away from reading that book, Conservation Refuge, and I was like, oh, my God, Peter Seligman right. is a horrible person. Like, that's one <laughs> of the things I took away from it. Right. Well, just, that's what Mark, that's what he was saying. Mm-hmm. That, that was, he's like, just read between the lines. I'm saying it without saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder, like, is that enough or do we need to say it? No, I don't know. You know, I don't know. And I (laughs) think it's still like it's, you know, I mean, like Mark says, you know, I think it's still I I I think we're still sort of waiting to figure out is like, okay, this guy, Peter Seligman, like we're just using him as an example uh, since he's so featured so prominently in the book. Like, like, did he really do a 180? Like are like, is he really doing good things with his new nonprofit or is it just the right right, intention right or is it just the right messaging you know or is it just that you got caught and called out and are now asking for forgiveness and you know exactly you know so because yeah like this issue has like at you know because again he wrote this book conservation refugees over 10 years ago and i think the main thing that's happened in that 10 year intervening period is all of these uh, you know, he, he calls them bingos, right? The big five international environmental NGOs. All the bingos have changed their messaging, right? They're all saying the right things as far as indigenous rights and the connection between that and environmental issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're all doing the right thing. And mm-hmm. some of that there are still examples and there are still like there's still investigative reporting being done i mean just like last year there was an investigative report that came out i think like um i think it was i think it was buzzfeed that released this and it was you know like documenting how there are like wwf paid uh anti-poaching rangers who are given the authority to kill poachers who are just like who are in this situation right they like it these are people who were dispossessed from the lands that their people had always lived on to facilitate the creation of a protected area so the people who used to be the protectors of this landscape Mm -hmm. are now treated as the enemies because they're going back into this landscape that they still see as their homeland to hunt and provide protein for their family right like Mm -hmm. utilizing resources that they've utilized for thousands of years but now when they do it that like anti-poaching rangers who are paid by the world wildlife fund are allowed to kill them right like this is this is happening now you know, right. This is not like history, you know. Yeah, I I, I just came across a TikTok. Uh, there's like, uh, Matt. I know you don't. Well, <laughs> let me know what you know and what you don't know about TikTok. I'm just gonna talk about TikTok, okay, and you know, fine. if you're confused, whatever. Um, but I came across this TikTok, and um, there was kind of this like area of TikTok called Native TikTok. Um, and there was this, uh, he made this, this kid made this video, this, uh, native kid made this video about how he, you know, was out foraging in, you know, like the quote unquote national park, which is his ancestral homeland foraging for, um, you know, plants and things. And he, he's, he's been confronted by so many white people, you know, and even after sort of saying like, Hey, this is actually my land. Fuck off. You know, he's, he's met with so much, um, you know, just 
awfulness and and why sort of that conceptually in our brains isn't clicking in you know on this micro scale but this is the same thing that you you know you're talking about in this article that's that's happening on like a much bigger much more extreme scale but then like at what point does that stop like when do we how do we avoid getting to the point where you know that's currently happening where we are now um, allowing people to freely kill um, these indigenous people, uh, uh, you know, as they're trying to access their own land for their own livelihoods and, you know, how we parse through that. It, it's really messy and it's really complicated, but, you know, it's, it's, there's just a lot of really good parallels that he makes. And it, 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 there's just so many like contemporary examples that you could use. Um, and, you know, when you guys talk about like the, the total amount of conserved land being the size of the continent of Africa. And like, yeah, that does sound impressive. But then Mark was like, well, think about all the people that um, had to be displaced um, in right. order to do that. Right. And think about what those people were doing to protect that landscape that they had been living on in a sustainable right. way for hundreds right. or thousands of years. I mean, depending on the situation, like, and then you just remove them, you know, like that causes ecological disruption. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. So it, it flips it's the like whole idea. part of the you know? environment. Right. I know. You know, it's yeah. almost like, <laughs> I don't know, it's almost like indigenous people know what they're talking about. Right. And know what they're doing. Weird. Anyway. Um, but I, I, you know, just kind of to, to, to wrap up, I guess, like you kind of end on sort of the idea of the book itself being like um like a playbook for other indigenous communities on how to successfully um reach sovereignty and reclaim sovereignty i guess would be the better word but um i think that's just such a like a great you know and he and he says he didn't expect it to really take off he was expecting you know like a handful of lawyers to utilize it as you know canon for their fights you know for you know their particular circumstances but um that it's really been utilized in a in a totally different way and more people are interested and it became this just this really great book um but I don't know. I, I think, I think that gives it like life after, you know, like you, and that's what I love about books like this. Um, it, th there's, there's like room to go with it and like room to like grow with it. Things can happen with this knowledge. It's not just like the static thing about history. It's like, no, like this is, this is how we make actual change happen. And I think that was really cool. Like when I'm thinking about a documentary project, like I'm always trying to think about like what the potential impact could be, like who could like who's the target audience and who could we reach with this story that could actually change the outcome. Right. And he did that in such an awesome way with this book and had this very small target audience. And it's kind of like a bonus that the book became more popular than he thought it originally might be. Um but the other fascinating thing about this book, The Haida Gwaii Lesson, is that um, it reveals certain aspects of the history of, of like Western history, right? 
like the history of Western society and culture that I think a lot of us aren't taught and don't know, but that is common knowledge in many indigenous communities and indigenous nations, because they need to know that in order to fight these battles for sovereignty and for land title over these lands that, you know, ha have been stolen from them. So like reading it, like, and I mean, I mean, a, a lot of the book is about sort of a, a history, like a, a sort of recent history of the Haida and, and, and how they did what they did, how they were able to achieve the level of sovereignty that, that they have, right? Um, but part of the book is also like the legal arguments that were used within Western society to take that land originally, right? Because if you're going to fight against that system, you need to know all of those details, right? And you need to know it from like a legal perspective. Um, and that was really fascinating to me to see like what was in there that, that, that I wasn't familiar with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Almost like holding up a mirror, I mm -hmm. guess, and, and using their own ridiculousness against them. Once you kind of read the fine print and realize like, Oh, that's, that's the reason like, that doesn't make any sense or that's fucking racist or, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like all the, all the, the reasons that, that might be at play in, you know, the foundation of why things are the way they are. All right. That's it for today's bonus episode. Thanks again to all of you, our members. If you want to read the Haida Gwaii lesson, I just shared the ebook file on a post over on Patreon. So check that out and happy reading. <laughs>